one of the things that preservation brings to kind of conversations about the surrounding environment in the city is to bring a, an ethics of care to the conversation, you know, to, to frame our relationship to the built environment through this lens of care and to do so begins to kind of refocus the conversation. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Jorge Otero Payos, artist, architect, and educator whose work is concerned with the future meaning of preserving the past. Jorge joins us today to discuss his recent practice. Jorge, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's really lovely to see you. Thanks for joining us. For the past decade or more, uh, you know, I've known you and your work is really at the forefront of re-engaging and reimagining preservation and conservation practices from rigorous, uh, critical point of view. Uh, and we can talk about your formation as an architect. Uh, you've both been trained and practiced as an architect. But over the past decade or more, you've identified increasingly as an artist or a cultural producer. And so I'm, I'm interested to ask you about that. Let's begin with a, a recent project of yours. Um, you installed uh, in a gallery in London a collection of sculptures under the framework of American Fence this past fall. Uh, tell us about that project. Yeah, this was a, a project that emerged out of the preservation of Aero Saarinen's U.S. Embassy in Norway, which was a beautiful building created and built in 1959 that was very open. It had a public library. People could just walk in. It had a public theater. It's just, you know unthinkable today that an embassy could be just a place you could just walk right in and have a pleasant experience. Of course, over the course of, you know, the intervening years, the place got more and more closed up because of all the various attacks on U.S. embassies from the storming of the U.S. embassy in Iran to the, you know, attacks in, you know, Tanzania and Kenya and, and other places. And so ultimately after 9-11, there was a big fence that was put around the building and that was it. You know, you could no longer really go in except through this very heightened security and you could only go in to get a visa and walk right out. So all the public spaces, everything was closed off. The U.S. is in the process of selling all of these beautiful modernist embassies around the world because they're centrally located. They, you know, they cost a lot of money and then they're building very large complexes that are you know, very secure and, and closed off from the city, normally in the outskirts, and that's what they did in, in Norway. When that embassy was sold, I was involved in that process as an artist to think about how do we preserve this place. And the new owners and the Landmarks Preservation Commission of Oslo and, and of Norway, they made it into a national monument. And they wrote it into the, the designation report that the fence around the building should be removed. And I had an argument with them, you know, because I felt that the, it was very important to save this, this piece of history. You know, this fence is just a layer in the, in the history of the building. And by the way, the embassy building is called the chancery, a chancery building. The embassy is the people, but the building itself is a chancery and the chancery is, is a fence, essentially a gate 
the chancellor, the ambassador is a gatekeeper for messages that go through, you know, so everything about the symbolism and the meaning of this building is caught up in this idea of fencing and fencing off and borders. And so um, the only way to do this was, you know, I, I had to talk to the owner essentially, and he was kind enough to give me the fence. He said, okay, you know, there's a military grade, you know, solid steel fence. And um, he gave me the fence and, and the way that we, I, I wanted to take it down in a kind of event. And so I staged this performance in which we took these large caterpillar, you know, crushing machines. And then we just crushed the fence. We threw it up, we twisted it. And, and then that resulting kind of kinetic motion that this, you know, bringing life to this inert material that then I cut it up and, and made these sculptures out of it. And, and um, there will be some of those sculptures that are going to go back on where the fence used to be. They will remain as part of the history of the building, but they're going to be now be something you'll be able to walk around. And I felt also on another level that was very important because Saarinen would always collaborate with artists and he had collaborated with um, Harry Bertoya on this building he commissioned him to do a sculpture that was never purchased by the US government. So there was a missing sculpture in the building to begin with. And that also was in the back of my mind. But, you know, for me, uh, I wanted to really bring this idea that preservation has to deal with meaning, you know, ultimately. And, and so when you conserve something, you're really dealing with the meaning of the place and of the building. And, and part of the meaning of this place was this fencing off and this closing it off. And so we wanted to open it up and we did open it up and it's going to be a beautiful new open building. I also didn't want to just simply erase the fact that this building for most of its functional life as an embassy has been closed off. It was really only open for, for very few years. So that's how that project came about. Yeah. What's the new use uh, for this building beyond being a national monument? So it is going to be the headquarters for a um, real estate development company called Fredersborg. They're going to inhabit it as their headquarters. It is right in front of the Royal Palace. So it is a very prominent site, as you can imagine. And it's a very symbolic site because all around it are all these other buildings that are cultural institutions, you know, like the the literary union, the union of, of, of writers, the artist union is across the park. So it's a very, it's a very important place in, in the kind of collective uh, memory of, of, of Norway. For the generation of people, you know, that grew up in the last, you know, that are like in their thirties and, and, and so on today, they've always seen this embassy closed off. So, you know, it really also speaks to what has happened in cities and the idea that borders are now not just borders between countries, but a lot of public space has been taken up under this kind of, you know, guise of security for security's sake. Part of the project and part of them being interested in this was to open it up to try to bring back, um, you know, a sense of the city as a shared object. So that I was very attracted to that. And at the same time, I've also been very vocal within the process, if not always successful, that they should not just simply return it to 1959 and make it, you know, a kind of image of Saren. And there are some traces of the building that really I felt very strongly should be left, like the bulletproof glass, you know, and, and some of these other elements. 
um, because I think they, they really tell a story. Um, but more importantly for me, you know, what I thought was um, important was to try to really think about what preservation can do beyond, you know, the care of a particular object. You know, I think that one of the things that preservation brings to kind of conversations about, you know, objects like this, but also the surrounding environment in the city is to bring a, an ethics of care to the conversation, you know, to, to frame our relationship to, to the built environment through this lens of care. And to do so begins to kind of refocus the conversation, you know, because if you begin from the point of view of how do we care with, for, for this, let's say this ugly fence, let's start with this ugly fence, right? Like how do we care for it and save it, uh, make it something that we can live with? We also begin to ask questions about what is the whole kind of supply chain of these objects that, that, that are around us? And we don't just care for the object when it's in its location, but we should be expanding the notion of care to all stages of this object. So that's why I wanted to save the fence rather than putting in a land dump, you know, uh, to say we're responsible for this fence, uh, even as a material, even as just pure steel. It's not okay to just throw it onto a garbage dump. Let's, as, you know, cultural creators and people involved in the built environment are really should care for its materiality all through its long temporality. So to, I think this perspective of, you know, when you bring the ethics of care and kind of center it, you add a kind of long-term perspective to the discussion about our material world. That doesn't square off against the mentality of development very easily, you know, because if you really think about it all, you know, and take it to its logical conclusion, you really have to rethink the financial structure through which you are really developing and redeveloping buildings. But I was very interested in the fact that this company, which is a development company, decided to adaptively reuse an existing building as their headquarters. And that, that I thought was symbolically very important. I think that we need to, in a sense, recenter our conversation about how we deal with the built environment and with development around this notion of care so that we understand the importance of existing things as well, you know, and, and start there, you know, care is care for something that's already there, rather than think that the, the most valuable thing is something that like a new construction, you know, like, so I realize that I'm kind of running up against a, my own training as an architect, you know, because I was trained to design new buildings. And that was considered the most important thing, you know, build a new building, you know. But I, uh, I think that where we're at today in the context of climate change um, doesn't make sense so much as a, as a kind of centering position of the field uh, or of the built environment fields. I think often, you know, I, I found in conversations about uh, preservation around architecture, at least, often there can be a very you know, essentialist turn. Often there's a sense that the meaning is eminent to the material artifact itself, and that somehow if we can scrape away all of the other layers and get back to the original either authorial intent of the architect in Saarinen, or if we can get back to some original artifact that predates the subsequent damage we've done to it. Um, Jorge, in your view, is 
Is there something essentialist or, or fundamentalist in that regard about preservation as an act? Uh, and in that sense, I'm, I'm interested in your formulation of experimental preservation. Is that still a framework that you're using to describe your work? Yeah, very much so, because it really, um, you know, experimental preservation, you know, again, centered on care, but also bringing in the notion of creativity and, and art as a method, for me, is very important. We are creating meaning when we are intervening, whether we like it or not. The, we might be creating meaning that we are constructing as the original meaning and kind of, you know, which is a bit of a, it's a bit of smoke and mirrors. But, uh, and, and I think that, that that is in a way has kept preservation from actually engaging with, with the real issues at hand, you know, because by, in a sense, carving out this idea that the meaning that we're concerned with is the meaning of some sort of precondition, right? Like something that happened in the past, the meaning that other societies, other times, you know, gave to, to this work. We are, in a sense, uh, completely ignoring the, the need for engaging with, the, with contemporary problems, you know, and certainly one of the problems of contemporary life is engaging with the meaning of the past. But I think that that conversation about authenticity is no longer really relevant, you know, or original meaning. Uh, but what I do think preservation brings to the table is a very long tradition of humility vis-a-vis -vis the existing world and to approach the world from the point of view of being secondary to it, you know, to, of being a support or of being a minor condition, you know, in the world. And so uh, in that sense, I think that's a very important contribution to make today because the world is built up, you know, and we've built so much that we've exhausted all of, the energy that we that the world could possibly kind of handle and not only that but we built it poorly so that most of what we built like you know you hear all these discussions about how much concrete was laid in the last 20 years in china and and, and so on and so forth you look at those buildings you know what when i went to china what struck me is how poorly they were built i mean they are falling apart by the way, they haven't even been inhabited. Most of those buildings just were built and they're sitting empty waiting for a future inhabitant that hasn't come yet. And when that inhabitant comes, they're going to find a building that has leaks, that is cracking, where the windows no longer operate. And so essentially, they're going to have to rebuild it. And if you look at that, like across the world, we don't have the energy, like literally the fuel to be able to underwrite a massive conservation campaign of the entire built environment. We just, we, we don't have that. So, And presumably this is also not just uh, an issue in one culture or another. I think of these um, kind of Spanish suburban, you know, ghost cities out of the 0809 financial crisis. And if you extend that thinking uh, across cultures, it's an extraordinary kind of, I'm interested in another aspect of your work, Jorge, which I will describe in terms of displacement. So if you've talked about care and creativity, and I want to add displacement to the conversation because often I find your work is both, um, you know, identifying, reifying, considering these material assemblages, 
but also moving them, right? Displacing them into a gallery setting. And I want to talk to you about that. So on the one hand, is there something about the act of displacement into a cultural setting from the real world that's, you know, inherent to that practice? And I'm interested in your choice, you know, being trained and having practiced as an architect to choose to identify and to practice as a cultural producer. Like, like tell me about that choice and both what freedoms it allows, but also maybe what limitations you see in that, in that metier. Well, let me first talk about displacement because I think this is very, very important. One of the things that, of course, like, you know, I've, I've spent a long time cleaning buildings. You know, part of the work that I do, you know, is, is to really collect the dust on these buildings. And one of the things that at the beginning, I thought I was cleaning the buildings and I was, you know, really the, the, the focus was the building. But more and more, I started to think about, like, where does this dust come from? What, what am I actually cleaning over here and asking questions about that? And then soon you start to, you know, th things happen, you know, there's accidents, you discover things. And one of the things that I found, and it was, you know, again, kind of fortuitous, I cleaned an ancient Roman mine in, in Spain. You, you mentioned Spain, so you made me think about it. And this Roman mine was a place where the Romans made silver, they produced silver, silver to make coins to fuel the empire, because the more people, the more coins they needed it. So they actually fought the Carthaginians and the Punic Wars to get the silver mines. But what I was interested in was that the dust from that mine that I collected, the same dust can be found in the North Pole. So when you talk about distribution and you talk about displacement, you know, what is the force or the energy that's moving things around? So the climate is moving lots of things around and the, the Romans used so much energy basically deforested Europe. It was the medieval times that forests grew back. All that smoke, all that dust, and you can trace it back to the mine because of the isotopes of lead and, you know, it's a long story, but think about it. It went from Spain all the way to South America and all the way through North America and then hit the North Pole because that's the way the trade winds go. So it actually, like the Romans polluted the world's atmosphere. I began to think about, okay, so I just collected this dust that is 2,000 years old, and it's still there. And the Romans, when I, I'm in Rome now, so I look around, there is very little left, I mean, of the Roman Empire here. You know, there's a few stones here and there, but mostly what I'm looking at is, you know, pretty recent fabric. But the dust that they made is still around. So... To me, I started thinking, well, this dust is actually the most long-lasting material of the Roman Empire. This is their biggest monument, was that they actually extended their dust across the world, and we can still see it. And it made me think about what we're doing today, you know, because the Romans were 70 million people. They lived to an age of about 20 years old, and we're close to 8 billion, and we live... I mean, well into our 70s, the amount, the scale, the kind of amount of dust made me think about the, the sky as really the, the ultimate monument that we're making, you know, the longest, that stuff is up for millennia. And so these pieces were really like, made me trying to think, okay, well, when you start distributing or displacing something, what we really find are the displaced pieces. Well, that's what I was finding. So I'm collecting something that's already been displaced, but what is that object? And so that object could be thought of as the atmosphere, the world's atmosphere, 
which is a kind of impossible thing to visualize because we never really see it. So we need a kind of mediation, a kind of artistic mediation to be able to visualize this object and a different kind of methodology. And, you know, I, I think that perhaps one of the consequences of this is that I've started to think about the built environment in cities, if you will, less as something that you start to analyze from the ground up and more as something that you start to analyze from the sky down. And, and that for me is also a way of questioning the whole regime of property upon which, and upon which we've built the whole idea of communal living and, and environment that we've sectioned off the earth and built walls around it and decided that this is the way to live. But if you look at it from the sky down, you just have a very different perspective of the kind of built environment we created. Because, you know, I mean, if I've learned anything from these ethics of dust projects is that the sky is a built environment as well. You know, in addition to the, you know, the more traditional model of, you know, uh, matter out of place, dust, dirt, uh, sedimenting up in a place like Rome, vertically, the idea that these are really metabolic flows. These are flows of energy and material. They're really planetary in scope. And that, that resonates, of course, with, you know, our, our friend Neil Brenner's conception of planetary urbanization, as well as, you know, con contemporary concerns about climate. So our listeners may be familiar with a line of work you've engaged in for a number of years now on this title, The Ethics of Dust. How did that line of work start? You, you mentioned uh, your practice of cleaning buildings. How do you go from, you know, cleaning facades to then reinstalling or displacing the Houses of Parliament into this extraordinary kind of cultural form? It really started as a, an attempt to save the dust that we were throwing out. And um, so much of preservation started as, you know, really as a major industry. Preservation developed in the 1960s after World War II when municipalities decided that they needed to clean up the industrial dust. So from Pittsburgh to New York to Paris and every other city across the globe, people started cleaning facades. They were, you know, these facades were black and they were trying to, you know, remove that dust. And on a massive scale, it just, and, and so actually there's very little dust left on facades. I started wondering, well, this is like a rare thing. We need to save this stuff because it is an environmental record. You know, there is, there is some information here that we don't know how to decode yet, but we need to, we need to be able to save it somehow. And so because of, you know, through various influences, I mean, Eva Hesse has been a major influence for me in her work with latex, um, really kind of, motivated me to start using latex, I started to think, okay, well, what if we can just transfer it? What if we can just put it on to a different support? Latex is an amazing material. And so I, that's how I started. And then of course, the place is surprisingly, some of the place, some of the places that are still dirty are many times some of these seats of political governance. So the Houses of Parliament in the UK had not been cleaned. They have no record of ever cleaning it. So you, you had this incredible, and they were, they were cleaning it now. So I, I, I was like, we have to save that dust. You know, we can't just throw it out. 
But then what happened was that, of course, we opened that show right at the, the same week that the Brexit vote was happening. We, and, and by sheer coincidence, it was not you know, supposed to be a completely like non-eventful summer. And then we were given this date to open. We opened and boom, there was this. And so the work began to take on this meaning, you know, returning to this question of meaning, a new kind of meaning of, about this traumatic kind of geopolitical shift in how the borders of Europe were understood. And as a result of that, there was some interest from a number of museums in the piece and the decision was made to actually cut it off and to send it to national collections in all of the nations of the United Kingdom. And so that piece was cut off, cut up into pieces and, you know, it really gave me pause because when you cut up a piece of, when you cut up an artwork, like if I give you a Picasso and you cut it into five pieces, most people would say, you just ruined your Picasso. It has zero value now. Um, but in this case, I think it, it added value to it because all of a sudden it could be distributed uh, in a different way. It made me think of, for example, the Berlin Wall, you know, the Berlin Wall, Again, another kind of border um, was chopped up into pieces and you can find it all over the globe right now. Uh, so actually when something really acquires a lot of value, it starts to grow legs and move, you know? And so uh, that, that became interesting to me because how do these pieces kind of relate back to each other and to the place where they come from? And to me, that's, that's where these works were interesting to me because they started to point not to the building where they came from, but to a, a different story, you know. And so the idea of the atmosphere as a object began to take on a kind of, for me, a, a, a meaning of governance as well. Like, how do we actually care for this object that is a planetary object and and so from the perspective of preservation you think okay well when you had paintings you started museums when you did with historic districts you started municipal landmarks commission when we had these you know world heritage we did unesco how do we deal with the climate essentially you know what is the organizational structure i i don't <laughs> i wish i had a you know the answer but it but it raised the question for me of governance that in a way part of the problem that we face is that our governance structures are are really based on a earthbound property oriented you know notion of territory which is just not in scope and size you know not able to really deal with with this larger object you know this planetary object that's where experimental preservation comes in. You know, it's just an attempt to really think through options, test them out, fail if you must, but develop new methods that are cutting across different disciplines and to not be afraid, you know, um, to do that. And so I think art is central to that. For our listeners, if you haven't seen these um, Ethics of Dust pieces, they are just extraordinary kind of luminous latex veils that by pulling away layers of the building's, you know, eminent material history, 
have a kind of ghost-like quality to them. And in a way, I think, you know, you mentioned you were very modest about the timing of that project relative to the Houses of Parliament and Brexit and it being timely politically. There's also something about the fact that those Houses of Parliament have been viewed and depicted culturally over the life of the Thames in how many different settings? Like I, I, we all have those images of, of you know, Turner's depiction through the fog, through the mist, like through the, you know, through the smoke, right? So you're, the work is not just you know, dealing in a kind of commentary on preservation, I would argue. It's, it's contributing to this longer history of depicting these institutions. No, am, am, am I right in thinking that way? Yeah, no, absolutely. And these works allowed me, at least, to, to really begin to think of dust as, as a major material in the built environment. The paintings that you mentioned, you know, and the dust as a kind of, as an artistic, you know, reality that, that people are trying to depict. I think artists, just like they were painting the weather, caught on to the fact that this is actually, wait a minute, this is... This is changing our perception of the world. How do we represent this? As much as, by the way, the car and the movement and all this stuff, right? We focus, if you take Art History 101, it's all about like, oh, movement was the 19th century, late 19th century, the car in the early 20th century war, perhaps. But pollution was a major, major kind of experiential shift for people. Like you went from not having it to having it in people's lifetime. And Artists were the first ones to notice. And that's where I think I really want to focus people's attentions on the contributions that artists made to our understanding of, of climate change. If you think, for example, about Robert Angus Smith, the man who is credited with discovering acid rain and discovering what we now, everybody, that you know, climate change. We, he was a preservationist. He was a chemist trained in Germany who loved ancient monuments and who spent his time looking at old buildings and all of a sudden noticed that they were falling apart. And he started asking, why are they falling apart? With his training as a chemist, beautiful drawings of those, uh, you know, he started looking at rain and figured out, oh, there's something here that's reacting with a lime and so on. And so he discovered acid rain, to make a long story short. There are other artists that started foundations and societies for the abatement of pollution. They're some of the earliest environmental, you know, protection organizations, nonprofits were founded by artists because they were the first ones looking at decay uh, and looking at the, the way things are, you know, the dust in the atmosphere. So I think that's really important to really recover that history, right? Like think about, you know, a landscape architect or a architect of new construction architect, let's call it that, let's call it a new construction architect. Or, I mean, it seems to me like a thing of the past, you know, the new construction architect, it, it, it seems to me like the kind of, you know, there will be at one point, you know, like the doctor that put the last leech on a patient. I do take pleasure in your formulation of the, the adjective before the architect, the minority position, right? So the preservation architect would just become architect and that somehow we'd have to have a new adjective. Like, oh no, I do new buildings. <laughs> yeah, there'll be like the new construction uh, architect yeah. who would be- Oh, you want a new building? Yeah, I do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah but that would, you know, what, that, that would be like really, I mean, is that really desirable? 
the most valuable thing in our society? Is that the kind of thing that you would want to live in? And as a professional identity, what is the, you know, as a profession, what is the ethic of that? What is the ethical position for a profession to profess that? I mean, my colleague uh, at the GSD, uh, Charlotte Maltair-Barth, has recently proposed for her Spring 22 Option Studio, a studio of urban design nominally premised around a moratorium on new building construction. Uh, and it, of course, has lit up, you know, half of t- Twitter or half of architecture Twitter, at least, uh, as being, you know, a very, very pr- provocative and therefore, I think, quite productive way of thinking, right? So if you think about carbon, embodied energy, the depletion of the resources, climate change, all of the topics that you you and your practice point to, the idea of us beginning with what exists materially as a place to start the work of the architect strikes me as timely. Well, and, you know... If you look down the line in the next, you know, nobody has a crystal ball, but certainly the trend, right? Any act that is replicable and can be done multiple times, right, is going to be taken over by artificial intelligence. So putting together drawing sets for the assembly of existing materials in a kind of, you know, frictionless plot of land where you're just not looking at context in any way. That is not those kind new construction is really not going to be the place where architects are going to be exercising any control or creativity. That is all going to be taken over by artificial intelligence and and kind of plug and play parametric information. So the most interesting is going to be how do you how do you make connections to existing conditions in a way, but not necessarily to reduce you know, there is this idea that you could just, you know, the future is about reducing our consumption and everything less. You could eat less, you know, live less, do this less. I I don't think that that is really the future. I mean, what, you know, build less. That's not the, you know, I think that's when people say, when people imagine the future and say, you know, look, new construction is not going to be the the future of architecture. People think, oh, well, that means I'm going to build less. There's going to be less architects. No, there's going to be a paradigm shift. People are going to move in a different direction because the model of, tech, of, of architecture that we have right now is a 19th century model. It came out of industrialization. It was, you know, all these new products coming out of industry have to be put together by people in an efficient way. So that's how engineers and architects develop drawing sets and all these practices. The future is not that problem. You know, the future is going to be having to deal with the care of material atmospheric environmental questions over long periods of time. So the the kinds of um, skill sets and and creative connections are going to be very different. And I find that very exciting. In addition to your your practice, you're also professor and director of preservation at the Graduate School of Architecture Planning and Preservation at Columbia University, in addition to educating people in the graduate program in preservation at Columbia, presumably you're also, uh, you know, working with and educating uh, future architects on these issues. You, you've also founded and been editor of over 17 years of Future Anterior, which I think many readers, myself included, considered me the most interesting, compelling journal on these topics. Where do you see the state of, uh, of the field today beyond your own work, more broadly thinking about, you know, education and, and, and the role of preservation conservation? today? Well, I mean, I think the field is at, a, is at a moment of profound change. The way that we have taught preservation for the last, you know, 30, 40 years has been geared essentially towards 
the administrative bureaucracies that was set up, were set up in the middle of the 20th and the latter half of the 20th century. And um, it, it, it is rather bureaucratic, you know, it is about permitting essentially, you know, getting, how do you get a building listed? How do you get a building, you know, to enter into this legal framework that is a, that's that's how preservation has been organized, and it's an important one. But it is also one that, if it continues to think in terms of rarity, it will extinguish itself. You know, because the problem is how to conceive of everything else. So, in a way, the field needs to kind of you know, like you turn a sweater inside out. You know, it's like we need to turn inside out and look at the rest of the world without losing that sense of being secondary. I mean, I think that for me is very important and, and requires a kind of different orientation to the world that is about taking the existing as valuable and trying to do everything you can to, to, to care for it. Sometimes caring for it means changing it. It's not about the form of it, but it is also about the way in which we are helping to bring about a more interconnected and just world. And so preservation can't stay, be, be about creating exemptions and being extraordinary. But we need to bring that idea of, that the whole world is pretty extraordinary. <laughs> So how do we, and that's where connections with ecological thinking, landscape architects, you know, who have, who have a very different approach to preservation, you know, landscape architects have been doing really interesting work, but they also understand change is the nature of the world, you know, so, so I'm, I think that the question of the environment and social justice have, have really put the field in a place where it is able to now make a larger contribution because, you know, we are um, thinking about the value of places, not through the lens of aesthetics or beauty or creative genius. It's not to exclude that because that is also very important, but let's say the, the valuation of the environment is more an equity lens. You know, how are we living together? How are we caring for the world together? How are we making collective decisions together uh, about how to care for the world? And I think that all of those decisions at the moment have a rather abstract and bureaucratic constraint, you know, and that's also a problem. So I think preservation brings is is the materiality of it, you know, that actually we are attached to places, you know, and, and those places have meaning and value to us and we need to develop strategies to care for them and to listen, you know, and how we do that is gonna require that we develop new methods and new abilities because most professionals listen to the people that pay them and they don't listen to anybody else. The poor, by definition, are not able to do that. So the need to care 
broadly for, and by the way, animals can't do that either. You know, they are not going to pay you. So we need to, as preservationists, think about how do we engage in the reconceptualization of how we make decisions together so that the, the idea of making a decision is not necessarily only a juridical act, because I think that that's the problem as well with preservation. It has become so juridical that it, that it becomes preservation only in so far as it is, uh, you know, spoke, it's a speech act, you know, it is designation and so on. But the lines out of people's mouths need to match the lines out of their, you know, drawings, you know, they, they need to, and their, you know, experimentations with materials. So thinking more broadly about our engagements with the environment is going to require thinking about our politics. I don't see a lot of that happening yet. Most of what we have is borrowing from existing methodologies, let's say planning, the law. That's how we're thinking about the, the future of the built environment. But I, I, I think we need to kind of bridge that a little bit more so that we can begin to challenge ourselves. It's very hard because, you know, we are all, as a, as a, pro, as a program, you know, we want to train students and educate students to change the world, not to, and for the better, you know, we're not there, I mean, to train them to preserve a particular building that is important and they develop those skills. But in that act of preservation, they need to be sparking a broader conversation about how does the preservation of this, of this building cue me in to possibilities for changing the world. Jorge Otero Pios, um, thanks again so very much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.